Hello and welcome to episode 16 of Bike Karma. I'm your host, Tom Brown. Today we got all kinds of stories about all kinds of bicycles and all kinds of people. Trying to look at the connections between all bicycle-loving people around the world. If it's your first time, welcome. Thank you for coming along for the ride. If you are a listener who likes any other episode that you've ever listened to before, please stop right now. Please take a moment to go to iTunes or Podbean or Stitcher and leave a review if you liked any episode ever. If you follow, that's just as good. If you go to all three places and follow, you're like my new best friend. Unlike some other podcasts, this is totally a labor of love. There are no ads for Blue Apron, no ads for Squarespace, no ads for anything, actually. Except for to please just give us some love back if you like the show. Thank you very much. If you're new here, sorry about that. This week we have a segment where Evan Pack talks to us from Brazil where he's been bicycle touring. We talk about bicycle picking and how bicycle pickers don't necessarily make good bicycle flippers. And despite not being able to make the R sound, I talk about who's more surly, me or my bike. Referring to my surly crosscheck which I was trying to upgrade just before spring break. All this and more, this time on Bike Karma. Thanks for coming along for the ride. So before we start the show, I did want to mention a couple of things that you might want to check out. One is this guy on Instagram called DougieJames4130. DougieJames4130. He has really cool pictures of bikes. He's got a really good eye for taking pictures of bicycles and bicycle parts and all kinds of stuff revolving around bicycles. So go check him out. Another one is, a lot of us listened to KISS when we were kids. It's a band, if you're young. Obviously, my favorite was Peter Chris. He was the cat. He was the drummer. It's, it, was, it was a 70s thing. Anyway, there's a group called Shia Calo Baccio, which has made a KISS triathlon bike. And they asked me to check it out, and it looks pretty neat. So go check it out. And lastly, um, was on a program called Bicycle Talk, which is run through WHUS uh, stores, the Yukon radio station, with Ron and Fran. And want to thank them for helping us advertise our Weathersfield Bicycle Festival. It's a swap meet, it's a bike show. It's June 11th, Sunday at Hamner Elementary School. If you're anywhere in New England, we've had people from all the surrounding states come to check us out, and gratefully so. But Bicycle Talk is another show and podcast. If you'd like to check out another bicycle program, there it is, Bicycle Talk, WHUS, also on Podbean. I think I might have already given it away earlier in the announcements, but at one point during this last, between the last episode and this episode, I stopped being able to use my mouth properly. So let's see if you can pick up on that, and hopefully you'll be forgiving if you can notice it. On with the show. This is a segment called Bicycle Pickers Don't Always Make the Best Bicycle Flippers. Thanks to shows like American Pickers and Salvage Hunters, people know about picking. If somehow you miss the whole phenomenon, pickers are people who hunt for antiques and vintage items. They're usually dealers who like to go through private collections, old warehouses, stuffed buildings, and people before they have estate sales. The successful ones look for items they are commissioned to find or items that they know they can make money on. Go check out the show if you haven't seen it. So picking is the finding. The other side of picking, if you're not just doing it for a hobby or you're some obsessed collector, is called flipping. And flipping is where you take what you bought and you pass it on and you sell it on. Some folks are really good at both. 
but others may be only good at one or the other. In terms of bicycles, I am pretty good at bicycle picking. I can find them. But I'm only so-so at flipping. I've come to realize I'm either not clever enough or maybe not ruthless enough to be a good flipper. So I really love the picking. I love the finding a bike. I've picked bikes out of rivers. I've, you know, how does a bike get in a river, you might ask. Well, a bike gets in a river when somebody steals it and then they drive by a river and then they check it into a river. This happens a lot. Bodies of water and bike thieves, they love each other. So the, the bike thief goes off on the bike and gets nervous and before they can take it to the pawn shop they maybe a cop car goes by and they throw it into the river or the pond or the stream or the ravine. So you find bikes occasionally thrown into rivers. I found one in a river that had been there for like a year and I managed to get it going with my son, watch the video, check it out. It's a good feeling to be able to find a bike that's been discarded and to bring it back to life and to pass it on to somebody who can ride it because ultimately the goal of bikes is to ride them. So I love the picking. I've watched every single episode of Pickers numerous times. I've watched all the times that they've gone into people's houses, factories that had closed down that people have filled with their crap. And it amazes me that there are people just driving around the world in trucks, trash day morning, and they look out and they cruise around looking for what people kick to the curb. By chance, a lot of times I've lucked out and gotten numerous bikes this way. But there are people who do it full time and they can accumulate dozens upon dozens, hundreds of bikes that way. Because people discard bikes. If it's got a rusty chain or a flat tire, it gets kicked to the curb. I had a Bianchi. Running gag alert. Bianchi. We have a running gag no. alert. Bianchi. No, Bianchi. A Bianchi, uh, two streets over. Now granted, it was in really, really, really rough shape. Not, not beyond salvaging. But it was in really rough shape and it was a Japanese frame. So I know that that is like rare to find, but there's been treks on the side of the road. I've gotten several treks that people have just put out because they're done with them. You know, they've been taking up space in the garage for so long and rather than cart it off, they know that if they kick it to the curb along with some other stuff, there's a chance that one of these people drive by with a truck and they'll pick it up. So what do some people do when they find a bike like that when they are lucky enough to just find one that's not stolen that's been discarded a lot of guys who are cruising around are scrappers and they're basically going to get scrap metal and in that case the bike is doomed the bike goes to a scrapyard unless you have a relationship with a scrapyard some of them have a no sell policy um, where once a bike gets in there they could have a a $5,000 bike sitting on a trash heap and they will not sell it to you for whatever twisted reason it is. Sometimes it's because they have somebody who goes in who they have an agreement that they're going to let pick. Other times it's just that's they're sadistic and they just want to tease bicycle pickers with these incredible bikes that are sitting in a gigantic pile full of parts that you know you know that some of them have been discarded because they're unsafe. You know, minor nuances. I make sure that whenever I find a bicycle frame that is uh, muerto, that is dead, then I make sure to mark it some way and say, you know, either cut the tube entirely or to make it so that somebody else doesn't get it at some point in the food chain and think, oh, I can bring this back to life because maybe they might miss the little subtle thing that I've, I've picked up on. And I know a lot of other people, a lot of bicycle co-ops are like that too, is, you know, they, they pretty much damage it all the way if it's, if it's going to be unrepairable and they want to make sure nobody rides it. In that case, that's the perfect reason. That's the only reason why a bike should go into a scrap metal yard is if it is dangerous, if it is damaged in some way that makes it dangerous for somebody to restore and it is unrepairable by a competent person who wants to repair it. There's another class of pickers who do this professionally and their job is to make money with their picks. 
So when you go to a bicycle show and you are looking at a bike, you have in your head if you're going to buy it to fix it, buy it to add it to your donation bin, or buy it to pass it on, you approach it very differently if you are going to keep the bike yourself. If you're going to keep the bike yourself, you can pay more money for it. So when flippers are picking, they usually end up paying less for a bike than somebody who is picking for a collection. And that just makes sense. You know, that's just normal. And it's not bad to flip something, but when you are picking to flip, you have to be more sensible about it, more logical, more black and white about exactly what you think you can get, where you think you can get it from, and you have to be a little bit more ruthless. I don't think it's necessarily always good to be that ruthless, but some people are. So how ruthless uh, someone's willing to be is up to their karma in life. There's being ruthless with a bicycle, which to me is hard. That's where you take the parts off of the bike and you part them out. And then there's ruthless with other people. That's what I find unacceptable. It's not worth it. So I'm not gonna name names and I'm definitely gonna be guessing at the prices as this happened a while ago. So I had this basically new old stock 10 speed from the 80s, maybe the early 90s. And I put what I thought was a fairly reasonable price of $150 on it on Craigslist. I cleaned it up, I pumped up the tires. It was as if, you know, somebody bought it and not used it for a couple of years. I got somebody who wanted to buy it. We met in a parking lot. Just as a side note, I suggest that if you do interactions on Craigslist, unless you feel really safe uh, going to a person's house, that you do your interactions in public. I know that some people have a perception of it being sketchy to meet in a public place, but it's actually a lot safer uh, than it is to invite people over to your home or conversely, if you feel uncomfortable going to somebody else's home. Anyway, that's another segment for another time. So we meet in a parking lot and there's a Starbucks there and I have a coffee and I'm waiting for him and he shows up and he starts uh, looking at the bike, he starts kicking the tires and then he tries to kick me on the price. The expression kick you on the price is he's trying to get a lower price but he's doing it in a not so subtle way. He's, he's actually asking for a great reduction. So he's kicking me on the price and then he says it's for his daughter. And so I'm like, okay, pulls at my heartstrings a little bit. Okay, he wants to get a bike for his daughter, that's nice. Um, uh, so I gave him a little bit more than I would have normally given him. So instead of $150, I let him have it for like 120 or something like that. So he goes away, says that that's going to be great. He gives me details about his daughter and uh, that she's going to be using it and that's what she was looking for. So I'm like, great, that's that's wonderful. But in the back of my head, there was like just a weird feeling. So I look on Craigslist about a week and a half later and I check all the surrounding areas on Craigslist, or at least I used to when I was picking bikes up a lot more often than I am now. And one region over, I noticed that this bike is for sale. And I know it's the exact same bike because it's, it's not a typical bike and the condition was the same and I had just been handling it the week before and he's selling it for basically double what he had paid me or at least he's asking to sell it for that much so I was like aha all right and then I looked at this contact information and it seems like it's the same guy so I noticed that it goes unsold for quite a while and I just kind of let it go eventually about six months later, I'm selling a bunch of parts and it was kind of like a flippers package where I had handlebars and, and pedals and other stuff that I wasn't gonna use, but I bundled it all together to try and make you know a little bit of money to get some other parts that I did need. He shows up at the parking lot and I call him on it and he goes, you got me. And I'm like, well, I, I didn't want to get you, but he's like, I do that and my apologies, you actually have me a hundred percent down. I did that because sometimes people don't want to sell bikes to me if they know I'm going to resell them. And I said, well, actually that's, that's not the point is the point was you manipulated me with the story about your daughter to be able to get a lower price. And it was a fake story. So that was the part that upset me. And I think the difference in price was $25. And I was like, 
integrity's worth, my personal integrity, at least I think my personal integrity is worth more than $25. And he apologized and he actually had the nerve to ask me if I would take any money off of the parts. And I said, absolutely not. And so he ended up paying what I was my asking price for the parts that I was trying to sell. So that day, I, I think he gave me his card. He was very apologetic and stuff like that. And I, I hope the guy, I wish him the best. Uh, I hope that he gets to a better place in the future where he, he learns to trust people a little bit more. But that whole idea of manipulating people to get a better price just ruins the whole fun of the hobby to me. Um, I mean, with a podcast called Bike Karma, you would think that I do care a little bit about, you know, putting some positive energy out there and getting some positive energy back. So when I go to make deals, unlike in this particular instance, sometimes I ruin deals by either giving too much information away or uh, on my part as a seller or on my part as a, a prospective buyer or in some cases because like many other people I'm not unique in this and that's what's awesome is you know you start fixing up bikes and donating them and you think you're the only person doing it and there's like hundreds and hundreds of people all over the country doing the exact same thing some people have done it for years I donated my first hundred bikes and then I got sent a newspaper article about somebody who's done like 5,000 bikes over the last 25 years so we're not unique but a lot of us we're not official charities and we're not a diehard collectors and we're not ruthless business people we've kind of got a foot into three different camps you know or a sometimes charity a sometimes collector a sometimes person who likes to actually make a profit on their work and that's all okay as long as you can keep it in balance so sometimes I end up talking myself out of either a donation or out of a potential sale uh, as in this case when I rolled up to some folks, some nice folks who were going to donate some bicycles to the bicycle club. And I had explained to them there were a number of different places that those bicycles could go. One is directly to our members. Another is we might fix them up and donate them. Another is we might pass them on to another organization similar to Mission and Ours. And another is we might try and sell them to get other parts that we need for the club. So having not seen them, I'm thinking maybe they're like a older mountain bike or maybe 10 speeds or something like that. I roll up and they're some very old vintage bikes. One of them is a skip tooth, which means it's probably pre-World War II. And another one is a very nice head badged, beautiful condition bike that's at least 50, 60, maybe more years old. So these folks had uh, kindness in their heart when they called me and contacted me initially. So I figured I should tell them how much I think the bikes are worth and that it might be worth their while to try and sell the bikes that are swap me rather than just donate them to us. And here's how that went. Because behind every pick is a story. I am here with Gail Evans and Lisa Gallipo. I came to East Hartford today to pick up some bikes that were being donated and I got rolling up and as soon as I rolled up I saw that there was some special stuff sitting there. I see a Viking, older Westfield, really nice looking with a spring seat and then next to it is a tricycle that has a skip tooth chain that looks like it could be a major mystery for Antiques Roadshow, and then a workman's cycle and a really nice tricycle. So I had to tell the ladies how much these bikes were actually worth <laughs> and that they were probably worth more than the typical donations that we get. So tell me about this bike. It's a Viking, so it's a Viking. It's a Viking. That's the bike that we all, all three of us, learned to ride on. And it was our mother's And it bike. was my mom's, and she just recently passed away, and she was 90. Wow. So she learned to ride on that bike, and then we all learned to ride on it. Right. And has she always been around here in the region? Always in East Hartford. Always yeah. lived 90 years in East Hartford. Yeah. So do, who would have gotten her the bike? Probably her parents, her mother and father. I think she had this when she was like 16 or 18 or wow. 16 years old. And I can't, I don't know. I never asked her who bought it for her. And, and you, were, you guys learned how to ride on it as well? We did. 
She so, worked at Woolworths, so she could have bought it herself. At Woolworths. Is that? Oh, wow. On yeah. Main Street. On Main Street. Street. In East Harbor. So what, what do you remember about learning how to ride on this? Was it easy for you? Did no, you take to it? It was very, it was 26 inch and it was kind we of, we were little, we were tiny. <laughs> <laughs> it was very hard, very difficult. It's in beautiful condition. I mean, it really is an artifact. And uh, I hope you guys have good luck when you come to sell it and show it and get to show some stories and people will hopefully tell you a little bit about the other one over there. Thanks. The other one's a living room bike. You can put that right next to the fireplace. Yeah, we knew it was probably in, 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 in an antique, but it's in such, it's in poor condition, so. <laughs> Not that bad. It's, it looks a little rough, but the pieces are all there. Do you know anything about the tricycle? Was that from, has that been in the family or it's was that acquired? It's been in the family for as long as I can remember. I didn't learn on it, but my, did you, I think you did, and my, my other sister, that's the bike she rode. I learned directly on the 26 inch, so I never had the tricycle. But I think Susan did go on the tricycle, and so did you. Could be. Yeah. I don't remember. <laughs> and then the nice kids, you got your mom a tricycle, an adult tricycle. And we bought her the, the adult tricycle on her 85th birthday. And she would ride around. Right around. Right around so a couple. lifelong bike rider. Yes. Always. Excellent. Yes. yes. All right. Lifelong. Good to hear about that. Yeah. Yes. All right. Well, thank you very much. And uh, I hope you guys have a lot of success with this. And hopefully they turn out to be really, really rare. <laughs> thank, thank you, you so much. much. Thank you. So I figure I'll just leave you with some parting thoughts. One is when you go to pick up what you think is a discarded bike, make sure it's a discarded bike and that you're not stealing it. Sometimes kids who don't think very much are leaving them on the side of the driveway and you can usually tell if you just give it a little thought. So if the bike has two flat tires, a rusty chain, the person in the driveway is waving at you while you go to take it, that's probably a good sign that they meant to discard it. There have been some that have been like so good back in my early days when I first started doing it that I actually knocked on the door to make sure that they were actually throwing it away and they were. It had been sitting at the side of the road for five days. And so that works out good. So it's better to be on the side of caution than on the side of thieves and scoundrels. My personal policy is if you know that a bike is worth a lot more than somebody is trying to sell it to you for, let them know a little bit of that. You know, you can up your offering price a little bit above what they were originally asking if you know that it is a diamond in the raw and that they're really clueless as to what it is. That's my opinion. And that's what I tend to do. Does that mean at the end of the day, I'm not gonna make a living flipping bikes? Absolutely. It means that I am going to be that guy who fritters his weekly allowance away on bike parts and bike tools. But I can also go to sleep at night. There's enough opportunities out there to, to find all kinds of bikes and have really a lot of fun picking, whether it's antique, vintage, or even modern bikes that need repairs. It's provided me with hours and hours and hours of enjoyment and tons of stories which you'll hear about in future episodes. My favorite two short stories are the finding of the Frankenbike. The Frankenbike was at a yard sale and it was in really rough shape. It was in curbside road shape and it was before I began really understanding bicycles and different brands and different values. Walked up to the lady at the yard sale asked her how much this bike was. The hubs were wicked loose, the wheels were wobbling inside the frame. It had been painted over flat black, which means that's urban camouflage so that it's less likely to get stolen. And it was in rough, rough shape with a lot of mismatched and questionable parts. I said, how much you want for it? She goes, $5, I said, sold. She was happy, I was ecstatic. I thought I just had some old clunker. I got it home later, I realized that this was actually something pretty cool, it had some age to it. I don't really feel bad because at that point I wasn't smart enough to take advantage of anybody. I was just enjoying and luck fell into my lap. So I got some natural paint stripper, the less toxic stuff, and I started trying to take some of the paint off 
and underneath the original paint that I was able to discover, it was an Adler, and it was a German work bike called an Adler. They are very common in Europe, but post-World War II, German bikes did not sell very well over here, so it's very rare in the States. It's basically the same style bike from 1927 until 1951 or 52. Beneath the black, thick, poor paint job was eagles everywhere. Adler is German for eagle. And so there's eagles on the crank set, there's eagles on the head badge, there's eagles on the down tube. Eagles everywhere, it's so cool. Best thing of all, it's my size. So on vintage rides, I have a really cool Adler that I had to put about 20 hours worth of work into to get it to be rideable and safe again. But it's an awesome bike and it might be worth up to like $600. I don't know because there's so few of them in the States. You hardly even see them come up for sale at all. My second favorite picking story is a swap meet story. It's a short one. Basically, there were two people who had a swap meet on the same day because one of them was trying to have one up on the other one. I went to the first swap meet and there was really nothing there. I went to the second swap meet, it was hopping. Because I went to the first swap meet earlier, I got to the second one a little bit later than I would have liked to, and if you get there late, snooze you lose, it's gone. I got there though, and a guy said, hey, you wanna buy my whole setup? 50 bucks. And he had tires and seats and pedals and all kinds of stuff there, so I'm like, I just got there, I wasn't able to buy anything at the other show, so I'm like, I literally bought the guy's area for $50. And then I, he's like, gave me a high five. I gave him a high five. He walks away. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, was it actually his space? Yes, it was his space, okay? It was actually his stuff. He just wanted to go and he didn't want to load it back up into the truck. So I literally gave him the money, stood behind his table. And within about two minutes, a guy walked up to me and picked up the seat and asked me how much the seat was. And you know I wanted to say, it's $50. But and that would have broken even with all the other stuff. I didn't though. I thought about it and there was this long pause and I'm like, how much do you think it's worth? And then I said, wait, no, I'm gonna be your best friend. You're gonna be my best friend. I'm gonna give you that seat if you help me carry all this stuff to my truck. And he did and we talked and it was a great time. I got a lot of spare parts that I could use on other bikes. So that was my favorite story is I got a whole, a whole vendor spot for 50 bucks and I also got somebody to help me carry it to the truck for the price of a seat. So made everybody's day. Either if you're doing it, have fun this season, go into all the swap meets, try coming to the Weathersfield swap meet on June 11th if you're anywhere near Connecticut, June 11th Sunday in the morning. And if you've never tried it before, consider trying to restore old bikes or keeping an eye out for them. You can always just bring them to your local bicycle recycler or bicycle co-op or a community bicycle shop where I'm sure they could use the parts. And if you're in my neck of the woods selling a bike and somebody tells you it's for their daughter, <laughs> make sure you ask them to see a picture of them together. So you're in Brazil right now. Oh. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah, I go on a lot of bikes there. <laughs> I try to get out about uh, a third, know, maybe a quarter of the year these days. Of three months in the year, I try to go on a bike trip. Welcome to this session of Bike Karma and the thing I like most about doing this show is making connections with all kinds of people and, you know, having a podcast empowers me to like 
just walk up to anybody who's involved with bikes and basically start talking to them and vice versa also happens so i have a guy messaged me tonight and then i just called him up he's in brazil right now and i'm in new england in the united states and so you want to tell me a little bit about who you are and what you're doing? Yeah, sure. My name is Evan Pack. Well, I, I travel quite a bit by bicycle all over the world. And the past five years have been consumed with a project called Vulture Space, which is a, um, you've touched on this in a prior episode, it's a hand-on bicycle workshop and recyclery. And in the wintertime, now I can escape and, and go elsewhere and ride around. But, oh, well, right now I'm in Brazil. In, uh, I'm near Salvador. thinking I gotta jazz it up by putting the sound effects and I didn't realize that somebody on the bike is gonna think that something's coming after him man but you right now are literally like a world away you are on the other half of the world and you're camped out in a construction site in Brazil yeah I'm like, um, I love dirt and bricks all around and I've tried to hide away off the main road I'm, I'm near I want to jump on a ferry tomorrow to Salvador. Yeah, it's pretty fun. It's, um, you know, living on, on my bike. It's changed my life considerably. I started going on bike tours some time ago and uh, after I finished with school and the first bike trip across the U.S. since I've gone across the U.S. different routes in Alaska and Mexico three times. Uh, a bunch of Argentina, Chile, Uruguay, and I'm in uh, Brazil. Like to the Himalayas in India. Wow. Um, I was in Australia last year. That's I rode the so tour cool. to France one year. Wow. Yeah, I was in a, a bunch. And how old are you? Ooh, that's a secret. I, I don't tell. <laughs> okay. <laughs> My default is 21. Okay. Well, I mean, it's a lot of stuff to have done already. Wow. So you're going out there. How many miles are you doing? What was your What was your goal when you set off to go to Brazil this winter? Mm, there's no goal. I, inevitably, I always choose a route. I need to know where I'm going to fly into and out of. But inevitably, it always changes depending on uh, maybe there are conditions with the road or with weather. Or usually people just tell me of uh, a place that I need to see and I'll just go there. Um, so this being no exception, I was going to meet a friend in the southern area of Bahia. So I took a bus down here from the north. I didn't plan to do that at all. But there's no there's no expectancy. There's no distance uh, expectancy. My first bike trip, I remember I had a computer and on my bike and I was really focused on getting a certain number of miles in per day. Mm -hmm. oh gosh, we ended up riding like 90 miles a day. It was, it was uh, faster than I go, faster than I ride nowadays. And also, it depends on the on the conditions. Um, if it's a more mountainous area, if there's a headwind, if it's really hot, like Brazil is hot. Now, I get up early, like at 5, 5.30 when the sun's coming up, and I try to get a lot of riding in, in the morning so I can relax when the sun's really beating down. Yeah, this is the end of February up so, in the United States. We just had a, a nice, <laughs> a nice hot day up here. Was like sixty yesterday, and now it's back down into the thirties. Yeah, I heard it's in like the twenties in in Milwaukee. Oh, yeah. um, but today I, I rode about I rode um, a metric century, so I don't know, there are like one hundred twenty kilometers. That's like seventy miles, roughly. Wow, cool. And so you headed up to the Amazon when you first got there? Yeah, it was, wow, riding is rough. Riding is really difficult in the Amazon. The, the road is not paved. There's a trans-Amazonian highway, and there's, gosh, I mean, there's not much out there. Like, there's stops where I get water, 
and like it would rain every day and the, the mud it's really thick you know there's different types of mud yep. this is the kind of mud that will, if you have fenders they will break you know it's the mud that sticks to your tires and, and gunks up and then if it doesn't rain it gets really dusty and if a car or a truck drives by it's just oh it's a nightmare so what kind of cool <laughs> stuff did you see in the amazon a lot of exotic roadkill <laughs> A lot different than in the States. Yeah, and was, oh yeah, definitely. I saw a, one that stands out as a very small frog. It was like bright yellow and black, really high luster black. Uh, I think it was like a poison dart frog. Yeah. I don't know, it was weird. Exotic roadkill. <laughs> yeah, and also a lot of um, on, I mean, beautiful wildflowers all throughout Brazil and um, there were some plants where you would touch them and they would move you don't think of plants moving to your eye you, know, you, you can't watch grass grow I mean it's so slow you don't perceive it but there are some plants where you touch them and they close instantly I was impressed did you see any capybaras the world's biggest rodent no that's a personal no. favorite of mine. Oh, no, I don't think I saw it. If I did, they were probably squished alongside the road. Oh. <laughs> what, what kind of advice do you have for anybody going to the Amazon if they're going by bike besides no fenders? Oh, um, a fat bike would be ideal. There have been a few trips where I, I wish I had a fat bike. Um, that northern area there. And also the... The Carretera Astral, which is also in South America, which goes along the um, coast like Patagonia, um, from Chile to the bottom of Ushuaia. Uh, that would be another one for a fat bike. But those wide, heavy tires would be great with um, a low gear. It's not flat at all. It's very hilly, very steep, very trying. It's a trip for someone I think is more experienced or is like really motivated to like just let it all out. Just ride hard. You don't really go very far. Mm. <laughs> What's really cool is the end, you know, maybe after, I don't know, like 40 miles or something, you'll be spent. I mean, 40 miles and you're, I was just beat. And there are these small towns along the way. I would stop and get some water, I get some food. There's always um, a football field, you know, like a soccer field. And like around mid-afternoon, all the kids would come out and play. And I would watch whatever I'd wait. I usually camp in the field once they were finished playing. And everyone's just incredibly friendly. I think that Brazil gets this reputation of being like a dangerous place. And statistically in the cities, yeah, there's high violent crimes, but Milwaukee, Wisconsin has very high crime as well. And my mother always worries. She said when I go on these bike trips, you know, I should be careful and everything. And she worries that. I tell her statistically, it's probably safer being on the road on my bicycle than it is in, in a city like in Milwaukee, usually in the middle of nowhere. But everyone's been so nice. Usually when I would stop the smaller places, uh, they would, would not accept money from me. I mean, I could not even pay for a meal or for a snack. Oh, wow. Regularly, people will stop and they will, they will give me money. And it, I have money with me, so I always decline, but you can only decline so much. You know, boy, it's like, if someone wants to, I've accepted this, if someone really wants to give you something, whether it's like a, an oversized t-shirt or something that you don't need at all, or if it's money, you know, just take it. You can re-gift it or whatever, but they want to do this for you, then just accept it. Yeah, it's surprising how nice people are to each other. I mean, that that's part of the one of the joys of, of biking is when you get all those kindnesses on the road. Whenever you're touring, you always meet those special people who are like, hey, how's it going? Do you need any help? Do you need anything? You know, and it might be, you know, at the end of the day or it might be in the middle of the ride or it might be when you have a flat tire or something like that. But there's... there's People are nice in general. Yeah, and most people, I don't think they experience that. Um, there's a fear factor, and I think media plays off these fears. So most people, if they're watching their, their regular news, they're, they're freaked out. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, uh, there's bad stuff going on, but there's, there's a lot of potential for good things to happen. 
Absolutely. You know, they do, and you you put yourself out there. So, what kind of rig are you riding out there right now? I bought a touring bike. It was really the cheapest touring bike I could buy brand new. It's a Fuji Touring. And I ride it for all my bike trips in the city one. It's beat. I mean, it is, like, really beat up. And the only thing original on it now is the, the frame for the seat post and the front derailleur. That front derailleur is really good. What kind is Everything it? Everything else has been replaced. What kind is it's it? It's a Shimano, it's a Tiagra Triple. It, 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 it just is really good. Now, do you see many other people on bikes? In Brazil? Yeah. yeah. Bikes are, there are, I think, per capita, way more people riding than they are in the U.S. I mean, they're riding lower-end bikes. They're riding, like, you know, single, um, like, a one-piece cranks, single-speed. What I really enjoy is that bikes similar to the motorbikes here that there's usually not just one person on the bicycle. That rear rack is used by another adult or a child. Sometimes there are three people on a bicycle. It's very romantic. It's, uh, it's very social. Yeah, I, I especially enjoy seeing sometimes a, like an elderly woman sitting like side saddle on the rear rack. <laughs> I really get a kick out of that. <laughs> Oh, and cargo bikes are huge here. It's it's one it's a particular style I've only seen in Brazil. It has a smaller front wheel and it has the rack in the front and it has a big like um explain like a kickstand that folds down in the front and they're used for everything from delivering big gallons of uh, big jugs of water to um, delivering groceries and heavier so lots of bicycles in Brazil. And I, I try to when I go on these bike trips more and more, I try to document the different bicycle infrastructure. So if you go on our, the Vulture space has a Facebook and Instagram, I try to post some pictures from here and how they can relate to um, to the infrastructure in Milwaukee, for example. Uh, it gives me a lot of good ideas and things to, to push in regard to advocacy. just a treat to be able to talk to somebody on the other side of the world today if you could send me some pictures i'll pop them up you know let me know what you see down there and uh have a good time at carnival and uh maybe we'll talk to you again when you get back to the states yeah great thanks uh thank you for having the podcast i would like to talk to you another time about odd things that i've seen on the road i'm going to compile a list I was going through things <laughs> in my mind and it's really jogging some memories. Uh, like We'll totally do that. That'll be a whole separate segment when you get back to Wisconsin. And um, you want to give people once one more time what site they should go to if they want to check out the stuff that you were talking about earlier? Oh, yeah. Well, the oh, regards to the, the bicycle shop. Yeah. Space. Yeah. Well, a hands-on um, bicycle workshop in recycling. It's called Vulture Space. Two words, vulture like the bird, space. Uh, Instagram, it's all one word, vulture space, M-K-E, abbreviated of uh, Milwaukee. Um, oh, one more thing, June 9th, the Bike Packing Expo, it's our um, summer fundraiser. It's going to be a blast, venture cycling, um, Greg Sippel, he's the, the founder, he has this amazing portrait gallery called the Bicycle uh, Eclectic Show, and he's bringing it to Milwaukee. Cool. Um, there'll be a bunch of other things like workshops on how to make your own panniers, and we'll have raffles of bikes. There'll be a, an overnight bicycle camping adventure to follow. Okay, so and they can find all if that. They went, if they went bikes there, they get a free beer. Whoa, that's worth it. <laughs> all the info's on our Facebook business page. Cool. All right, I'll talk to you again when we got a better connection, but thank you very much for calling me from the other side of the world and uh, reaching out. Have fun. Enjoy Carnival and safe trip back. All right, thanks. If you've ever listened to this podcast before, you know I try and keep it pretty cheerful, but today's segment is called, Who's More Surly, Me or My Bicycle? After doing the end-to-end across the UK tour in 2014, 
I added installing a triple set of chain rings with a granny gear onto my to-do list. A granny gear is a really low gear that helps you get up hills and mountains. Surly Crosscheck is a do-everything kind of bike. It's made out of steel, so it falls in with the steel is real crowd. It is known as the Swiss Army Knife of bicycles. It can be used as a cyclocross bike, a capable touring bike, a heavy road bike, a fixed gear, a single speed, a commuter, and more. Surly originally sold the bike with a chain ring on the front that had space for three gears, but only came with the two larger ones. The large ring was not as big as a road ring at 48T, and the next one was 36T. Fully loaded and touring up hills in Scotland and Devon, I found I really could have used that 26T granny gear to spin up the hills easier, especially with my overpacked panniers, and as it was, I ended up walking a few of the steepest. Knowing that I would need to replace a lot of the rest of the drivetrain, which still had some life in it, it got put on the back burner. Picking up a piece here and the piece there, putting it aside, waiting for the chain and jockey wheels to wear a bit more. Finally, as the winter this year ended, I felt guilty about not giving my go-to fendered bike a bit more love, and I started the project in earnest. I set a deadline of spring break. For those of you who don't know, I teach high school. Emotionally and physically, spring break is an oasis after a tough winter of grading, giving exams, standardized tests, proctoring. I usually get to recharge my soul, exercising and getting some sun. So getting the bike ready for then would work out well and seem totally doable. I began trying to look up the info on the Surly site. It had been deleted or maybe it was moved, couldn't find it. The cross check now comes as a 10 speed so that even changed too. Even though the Crosscheck bike frame has stayed roughly the same for years and years, the build, in other words the parts that are used to complete it, are different each year. Sometimes the differences are very few, other times there seems to be a change even mid-year. Either way, just because you have a Surly Crosscheck doesn't mean it's going to be just like somebody else's Surly Crosscheck, even if you get it at the beginning of the year and they get it at the end of the year. Trying to find the screenshot I had saved of the article, just in case of this eventuality, knowing that info sometimes moves or gets deleted or updated, it was not going well either. I could not find it. Maybe it was on the old computer's hard drive or one of the smaller flash drives knocking around somewhere. I almost started to get irritated with Surly itself. I know they said that the front derailleur would work going to a triple, but others had reported and confirmed my experience that it could not quite reach all three chain rings. The snarky attitude of dialogue used to promote the brand suddenly started to make me feel surly with surly. The cute little attitude that they had infused into their marketing and their website was all of a sudden irritating, and I was starting to get really surly with them. Until... I realize that the company comes right out and says, hey, we're surly. Surly. No matter how much I like their bikes, the company never promised to not be surly. So I let it go. I mean, it's their name after all. So not being able to find the original article from back when I first bought the bike, I was inevitably led to the forums, the multitude of bicycle forums and found numerous entries of people who had either done it or who were asking others how to do the same thing that I was trying to do. How do I put a triple on a surly cross check? It seems every one of the threads eventually got to a very definitive answer. Sadly, out of 10 threads, there were 10 different answers. None of them seemed to be total BS. I tried to be zen about it. Is it black or white? Yes, it's a zebra, or maybe a Kung Fu Panda, or something else, I don't know. But one of the major frustrating double truths of bicycles, just like the question of is it black or is it white, yes, is that one, in theory, so many bicycle parts are compatible, and they can be made to work with each other. But the second side of that, which is also equally true, is that in practice, the situation, the one that you usually find yourself in, the parts, the
you are specifically working at will require a certain specificity and exactness in order to work properly. So some days that you dream about, you can take a part from a 30-year-old bike and replace it with one from a modern bike and everything goes hunky-dory. But usually, you have two parts that are only apart by like millimeters and you really need to have the exact part. So, the first thing that we looked at was the front derailleur, AKA, I like the way the UK people call it, the front mech. It's easier to spell. So that's the shifter that's near the pedals. That's the one that changes the chain on the chain rings. So as I said before, that was not able to reach all the three chain ring gears. I tried and adjusted a few times. I could get like the bottom two, but then not the big one. And then I could get the, the big one and the middle one, but I couldn't get the little one. At one point, I thought I had it. I got all three to work, but then the chain would rub on the, the two ends, so it didn't really work. So I remembered, though, that the Surly site said that it could be made to work, which was like, that made me feel good at the time. And now it was kind of like gone, and I wasn't able to point to it anymore, and it wasn't working. The bottom bracket is what the crank arms attach to and spin upon. The width of the bottom bracket and the length of the little spindle the cranks bolt onto, and they come in different widths. The two main bottom bracket widths are pretty common. The cross check is a 68, but when I pulled it out for the first time since I've had the bike, I found that they had installed at the company a 73 with a spacer. That just left me totally confused. So luckily I had a bunch of 68 bottom brackets with different spindle lengths to compare them to. So if the shell was wider, was the spindle length the same? In normal people language, I had a bunch of exactly the same parts, slightly different in size by only millimeters, and ended up having to figure out which one to use. This was really confusing. And every site I checked gave me a definitive answer, but they were all different. Eventually, after getting things to only kinda work in a way that would have gotten me through the rest of a journey or an epic trek through some foreign land, I, I could have made it. I made my bike drivable and everything was cool, but it wasn't working the way it should when you have it on a stand inside your house. I went back to the forums and found a guy who had the same experience as I. They said after numerous attempts, they couldn't get the parts to work together either. I liked that he also got a little bit surly himself, as he mentioned that he had also read that Surly at some point in the past said the front mech would work. Good. It wasn't just me. Now, another part to order and more time to wait. A new front mech, days to wait, rain in the forecast, and my only bike with fenders incapacitated on the work stand. When the mech finally came, I put it on a notice that yes, it would definitely switch the chain from the little granny gear all the way to the large chain ring with plenty of room to spare. Joy! Puzzle solved. Oh crap. Now the arm of the front mech was hitting the fender, and even if the fender wasn't there, it was getting pretty damn close to the tire. Like an onion. One problem peeled away to reveal the next. Back to the annoying forums. Yet another person, and then three more in fact, started to ask about how they could move their wheel back. And then upon looking deeper, it was because of the very issue I had. So I upgraded my Surly Cross check to a triple, and then I had trouble because the mech was gonna bang into the tire even though it says fatties fit fine. So what should I do? Well, one thread totally gave me the advice I wanted to hear, which is you can move the tire back as far as you want. It doesn't matter. Scrolling down a little bit more, it started to change, and then the advice turned to, you may want to leave a little bit of space. And then by the time I got to the end of the thread, like 30 comments later, it said, 
Moving it back too far would make for really crappy shifting, so don't do it at all. Don't do it. That made it totally unhelpful. I went back downstairs, I pet the cat, I kicked the ground, and I moved the wheel back just enough for the arm to clear, probably at the absolute limit of how far I could move it back before the shifting would start to become crappy. At this point, I don't know who was more surly, me or the bike. Apparently, fitting the fenders back on might require cutting them which I was not eager to do. My nice German plastic fenders. The forum said that this was one of the benefits of the long haul trucker touring model over the more versatile cross check. Well, thanks a lot. Like four years too late. Crud. Luckily, my fenders had some flexibility engineered into them. The Germans know engineering. So I slid the bracket forward and attached the fender just over the front derailleur. Finally, able to put the rack back on, new 12 to 34 rear cassette, the new jockey wheels for the derailleur, the new shift cable because the other one had frayed while I was filling around working on the project, my nice new KMC 9.99 no stretch chain, I even threw on new cool stop brake pads on the back because I could. I cleaned and polished it up, ready and just in time for spring break. I had made it. I was going to break that new drivetrain in while pounding out some hill climbing miles. I counted the days, hours, minutes, and seconds until it would finally be the end of work on Friday afternoon. During my final staff meeting about testing on Friday afternoon, I noticed that the eye twitches I had attributed to stress and allergies were getting a bit worse, and my tongue was getting numb. Just minutes away from break. I had made it. I could lick my wounds the whole following week. Even if I was sick for the weekend, I thought, Monday's weather was going to be gorgeous and I would probably get over whatever this was by then. No classes to teach, no kids to ferry around, don't even have to worry about making dinner because I don't even care if I eat. Just full days on the bike. Saturday, I wasn't feeling so great, so I kind of took it easy. I laid low trying to get over it, figuring that I'm going to put all of it into Monday. Monday's the day. The weather is perfect. It is going to be all happening on Monday. Sunday night, half my face stopped working right. I finally went to the doctor that night, and he said, Bell's palsy, and that I need to take it really easy this whole week. I also need to take steroid meds that may make me irritable. Also, no exercise, including riding, so that my body can bring down the inflammation on the nerve on my face so that I can move the other side of my face again. So in summary, my cross check is perfectly tuned up, sparkling and ready to go. But now, I'm the one who's more surly. Wow, I just listened back to that. I sounded really grumpy. <laughs> it could be worse. And I can't believe I read that whole thing without being able to really make an R sound. <laughs> I can't move my lips on that side. Thanks for coming along on the ride on another episode of Bike Karma. I'd like to thank Gail Evans, Lisa Gallipo, and Evan Pack for being in this episode also like to thank the almost 5,000 people who've downloaded episodes, including the new followers Enzalagi, El Angel Eon 94, J. Sarah Team, Carl Prakashana. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a positive review on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean. Like or follows are greatly appreciated. 
If you can make it anywhere near Weathersfield, Connecticut on June 11th, we have the Weathersfield Bicycle Festival Show and Swap Meet, which is free general admission. Last year we had bikes from 1865 all the way up to Space Age Velomobiles. All styles, vintages, and lots of cool people. The proceeds from vendor spaces help to support the WHS Bicycle Club, which is the club that I advise. Our mission is to support all healthy bicycle-relating activities within our community. If you're unable to attend the show and want to show your support, we do have a wish list up on Amazon with some very reasonable items. Just go to Amazon and look up WHS Bicycle Club in their wish list. We want to thank Mobjack Music and Keller Glass for our wonderful opening and closing theme music. If you have an idea for the show, you can always email me at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. You can also direct message me on Instagram, Facebook, or many other places once you find my account there. Look for Bike Karma. The Bike Karma podcast project and all the intellectual property surrounding therein is the property of Thomas Brown. All rights are reserved. Thank you very much for coming along for the ride. And yes, for those of you who are curious, I am feeling like 99% better after that last segment. If I don't see in Weathersfield at the Weathersfield Bike Festival in June, till next time, keep it wheeled. <laughs>